was so unsatisfied with my life. I felt so powerless. Mm. You know, that's really what it boiled down to was feeling trapped. I felt trapped. You know, I was like trapped into this life. Did I choose my husband? Did I choose to be a mother? I didn't really feel like I did. I feel like life just happened to me. And now I was just stuck with a very, very full life. Hello there, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to A Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. Today's episode is dedicated to Fega Bospitzalo, Alava Shalom, by her loving husband and children, who continually long for and adore her. A woman whose being was larger than life, a beam of light in so many lives, a nurturing soul, and a voice for those who had lost their own. In honor of our beautiful mother's neshama, please look out for someone who might need your presence today. Mom, we miss you, we love you, and we feel you strong. Thank you for such a beautiful dedication message to begin today's episode with. If you are listening to this and would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast in honor of a birthday, yard site, wedding anniversary, someone you love, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor or email us at info at humanandholy.com. Human and Holy is a nonprofit organization. All of your donations are tax deductible and support our work of bringing Hasidus into the world in the most human and holy way possible every single Sunday morning. Thank you to our sponsors, past and present, for making each episode happen. Today, we have Hannah Kornfeld speaking about her journey to owning the choices she made as a young person to have a large family and get married at a young age. Our conversation is based on a talk from the Lubavitcher Rebbe about our matriarch, Rachel, being buried on the side of the road and the differences between giving wholeheartedly to others, and a loaded martyrdom. Hannah outlines her own journey to crafting a new way of giving and of choosing to give to her family, her spouse, and to God. This episode is a long one. I think martyrdom and owning our choices are really huge topics within our Judaism, especially as women and often also as mothers. I really encourage you to take this one till the end to get a full picture of Hannah's message and all of the ideas that we explored today. I know that for any woman who is struggling to own some of the choices she made in the past or feeling like a martyr in the way she is showing up in the world and honoring those past choices, this episode is going to resonate really deeply. Let's get started. Martyrdom and owning our choices. My name is Hannah Kornfeld. I am 40 years old. I'm married. I have 10 children. I had six boys in a row, then four girls. God. And I live in Florida in Inverary. 
And I teach in LEC. It's called Beis Hana, the high school of LEC, where I teach ninth through 12th grade. I teach Chumash and Chassidus, which I love. And I also write a column for the Neshe Chabad newsletter called Esther Etiquette, which maybe some Lubavitchers have heard of. Mm, I've heard of it. I didn't know that because you're anonymous. Does it have your name there as the author? So recently it has my name in the last maybe five years. Okay. But I started it anonymous. I feel like I read it growing up. Does that make sense? Like as a kid or like as yeah, a teenager? Yeah, I've been doing it for many years. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, That's yeah. epic. I didn't know that. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. Today, we're going to talk about a sikh of the Rebbe that speaks about Rachel being buried on the side of the road and what that could teach us about martyrdom and how to choose in an empowered way. Let's start by sharing the sikha, and then we'll talk a little bit about your own life experience and how that has shaped your understanding of what that means. Okay, sure. So the sikha actually is a Rashi sikha that explains a Pasuk that is kind of like misplaced. So it's at the end of Yaakov's life. He's blessing Menashe and Ephraim along with all of his other sons, the Shvatim. And in the middle of the blessings, he says, and I was returning from Padan Aram where Rachel, your mother, died. And while I was journeying to Eretz Yisrael, which was close to Ephrat, and I buried her there on the side of the road in Beislechem. And Rashi kind of asks, like, why are we interrupting the blessings talking about Rachel dying? It just doesn't fit. And really, it should have been placed where Yaakov asked Yosef to bury him in Eretz Yisrael. Like, you would think like he's saying that to him because I know I didn't bury your mother in Eretz Yisrael, and I didn't go all the way there, and I buried her on the side of the road, but I'm asking you to bury me in Eretz Yisrael and not in Mitzrayim. And Rashi explains that what he was saying to him is, I know that there's something that you're upset, that yesh belibcha, that you have something on your heart that's you know upsetting you, but I want you to know that it was by Hashem's command that I buried your mother there. And then he quotes the medrash that says, yesh sachar there's a reward for your actions, and that she's going to be there for her children in the future when they are exiled. And the Rebbe kind of explains this, and there's one part of the sikha where the Rebbe explains what Yaakov was really telling Yisif. And the Rebbe says, he's not excusing himself. Like, there's no possible way that Yisif suspected Yaakov of not doing enough for his mother. And so Yaakov wouldn't be, like, excusing himself for that. Because they were tzaddikim. Yosef didn't think, like, oh, I'm resentful that you didn't bury my mother in Eretz Yisrael, but now you're asking me to do something that mm. you didn't even do for my mother. Right. They're not petty like that. And he knew that his father loved his mother. She was his beloved wife. She was the Akaris Habayas. And there's no way that he was resentful. So what was he really saying there? And the Rebbe explains that really Yaakov was saying, even if Yosef knew that this was by the word of Hashem and that this was meant to be and that Yaakov did everything that he possibly could and this was meant to be still, there could be something like a sadness that his mother was missing out mm. being buried in the Maris Machpela. And the Rebbe says that it was by the word of Hashem and that she agreed and that she wanted to be there and that she chose to be there with her children. The Rebbe says, don't think that she was martyred herself for her children. She actually wanted to be buried there. That's what she chose. Like she had options. She could have been buried in the Mars Machpelah. Obviously, she was his primary wife. But she saw to the future that her children were going to be going to Gullus. And the Rebbe says something so beautiful there also. He says, you know which children she chose? She chose the horrible children, the ones that were being exiled. Mm. Those are the children that she chose to be buried for in that place to give them hope that they're going to one day return and that Hashem hasn't forgotten them and Hashem hasn't forsaken them just to give them comfort. She chose those children to be there for. 
I found it very empowering that the Rebbe used that word of she was not a martyr. Like she did not say, this is what I really want, but I'm giving it up because I know somebody else wants that. And it, it just reframed the way that I looked at all choices that we make, that I make, and that I've made in my life in anything with friendships, with motherhood, with marriage. Often we look at things and we think, am I going to do what that person wants or am I going to do what I want? And sometimes we choose to do what's better for our kids. And sometimes we choose what's going to be better for our spouse. And sometimes we choose what's going to be being a better friend. And we feel like we're giving up something that we want for the better of the other person. And the rubbish kind of shifts that and says, no, you're not giving up anything. You're choosing something you want more. You want that relationship more than you wanted to serve yourself. Don't mm. look at it as like, I'm choosing something for someone else. You're choosing for you. This is something that you value more. He was saying Rachel valued being her children's mother more than she valued being buried in Aristotle. That was what she chose. And she didn't regret it. That was more important to her. We don't look at it like, oh, I chose to go on vacation instead of shoveling, you know, mud in the backyard. I gave up shoveling mud in the backyard. We don't look at it that way because we don't want to shovel mud in the backyard. So even though that might be an option, we don't feel like we're sacrificing anything. They're saying you're not sacrificing anything. You're just choosing something that's more valuable to you. And when we do that, if we frame it that way and we recognize it, because the truth is it really is. When we choose, let's say, to give up our a career because we would rather have children. We're not giving up anything. We're choosing something that's more valuable to us. Mm. I feel like this is the great question of womanhood. Can you walk us through a little bit about like your own experiences of possibly making choices out of martyrdom and actually changing that perspective? Yeah. So I think that this concept is also very tied into the idea of Bifura Hufshis, which is another thing I think the Rebbe spoke about so much. It's laced through so many of the Rebbe's teachings. And it's really owning your choices. And I think there's a difference between Bechira options and Bechira Chavshis. And I'm going to explain that, but I'll tell you how it manifested in my life. So I was regular Lubavitch girl, and I still am. <laughs> Just, you know, your typical, I grew up in a family that my parents were on shluchas. I was the oldest of nine children. I went to Lubavitch schools, seminary, I 40. So in my day and age, it was like the thing that you did if you were a good Lubavitch girl was you went to seminary, you got married, and then you and your husband went on shluchas. And that's kind of what we did. And I had this idea of just doing whatever was supposed to be done. It was just sort of like I was almost like pulled by the tide and just swimming along in the current. And it was fine, you know, but certain things didn't work out. And so when I was a few years in already married with a few kids, and I found myself not on the projected path that I had assumed I would always be on. And I turned around and I started thinking like, did I even want this? Did I even make a choice? Like it was just sort of like, this is what you do. This is what I did. Then you get married and obviously you have children. And then I started looking at some of my friends around me, and I've always had friends from all different walks of life. And I was thinking having a child is like such a choice. You know, they prepare for it, they have their jobs for 15 years, they already start college funds before the kid's even born. And I was thinking, like, I didn't put so much thought into having a kid. I had a baby 10 months after I was married. I was a baby myself. My parents had to literally help me raise it. So I started thinking, like, did I even choose any of this? 
And it was very overwhelming for me at that point. Like I started really questioning my entire life. Mm. So that's what led me to really think about what choice is and what freedom of choice is. And do we actually choose our lives? And I'm happy to share what I discovered, like how I kind of reconciled feeling like my life just sort of happened to me and I didn't have any agency in my own choices. Mm. I'd love to hear, and I want to just clarify to you before you explain, was the crisis that you were experiencing that you had chosen to go down this path, imagining that it would look in some picture perfect way, and then you were actually living it and it was a lot more challenging than you expected, not as pleasurable. I don't know. Like, what was it that kind of crystallized like weight? Like, was it once the challenges came that you were like, did I even choose this? What was it that shifted your perspective? So what shifted my perspective was a like just certain challenges that happened in my life. Also that we weren't on Shlichus anymore. Mm. We sort of, we, that we lost that opportunity that felt very like my entire identity was wrapped around Mm. that. You know, that was what you do. That was what we did. That was important. That was valuable. And then I had all these other components that make up a good Lubavitcher's life, but I didn't have the part that sort of identified me. So it was Mm. like, did I even want all this? Okay. (laughs) All the other parts. Okay. So it was not being on Shilchus. That was part of it. I don't think it was the only thing. I think also part of it was just, I think at a certain age, you just start thinking about what you're doing. (laughs) It was just like, oh my gosh, like I'm 30, however old I was, I was probably a late bloomer. And I was like, what's going on? I just had a bunch of kids. Maybe I was starting to read parenting books and I was like thinking like, I'm not even a good parent. Like, why am I Mm. having all these kids? Why do I deserve them? Okay. Why should I have them? Did I even choose to have them? Right. So it's like a unique combination of your upbringing and your personality and also your life circumstances, how things unfolded for you. A hundred percent. And I don't think anything is ever one thing. Mm -hmm. Hashem created the world through Elava Alal, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. And I think that our lives just mirror that. We're created in the image of Hashem. And I think you can't point to one thing and say, oh, this is what caused it. Yeah. There's so many components to something causing one thing. Yeah. It's just a very long chain of cause and effects. <laughs> yeah. Until you were at this point where you had to examine your choices in a new way, like you were forcing yourself to. That's just where you had come to within yourself. I had to because I was so unsatisfied with my life. I felt so powerless. Mm. You know, that's really what it boiled down to was feeling trapped. I felt trapped. You know, I was like trapped into this life. Did I choose my husband? Did I choose to be a mother? I didn't really feel like I did. I feel like life just happened to me. And now I was just stuck with a very, very full life. Mm. I also started questioning. I was a teacher. I enjoyed being a teacher, but I kind of felt like I was pushed into being a teacher. Mm. You know, all Lubavitch girls went to seminary, learned how to become a teacher, <laughs> learned how to teach Judaic studies, and that's what I was qualified to do. And I was like, maybe I don't want to be a teacher. Mm. Maybe I wanted to be a doctor. And then I happened to be a very strict rule follower. So I would, you know, for some reason, I don't know why, but I always had this very strong connection to the Rebbe. And I just would read the sikhas, the letters, and I just couldn't. I was like, but why doesn't he let me go to college? Mm. <laughs> That's how I felt. It was like, I'm not allowed to. I felt trapped, trapped by what I was learning. Mm. That also trapped me. Right. It didn't feel like guidance for you to integrate. It felt like a rule that you had to follow. Yeah. Everything felt like rules I had to do. The Rebbe said it, so I had to do it. Mm. Okay. So what was this pivot in your mindset? 
So I think the pivot in my mindset start was from learning more. You know, the more you learn, and I think I really relate to balishma. You know, like even if what you're learning is not for the good reasons, you're learning it because what do I need to do? How am I going to have a good life? And that's the motivation for learning is like, how am I going to get a good life? It's all selfish. You know, like, how am I going to get Hashem's blessings? How am I going to be rewarded? How am I going to have good things? The Rebbe actually in Asicha explains that meaning inside that Lailishma lies the Lishma. Like your mm. essential truth lies in there and you just have to work through it. And I experienced that breakthrough. It was like I was learning and I was learning. And then you can learn the same thing 10 times and there's suddenly like a light bulb. Like there's like mm. with that Sicha with Rachling, you know, I had taught it before. I never saw that one little shift that was like she wasn't a martyr. She chose that fully with her heart and she could have chose something else. So I started learning like things that I had learned my whole life. I mean, in Yanishal Taras of Hasidus, you know, I learned it in high school. I had no idea what anything of it was saying. I knew how to translate it and I probably got a hundred on the test and it's possible to do that and have not a clue what anything is saying. So I think I just started learning more and more about what Bechira was. I thought of Bechira as, you know, we have free choice. What does that even mean, free choice? I thought it was like, I could choose this over choosing that. And I realized that's not what Bechira is at all. Bechira is not options. Everyone has options. Birds also have options. <laughs> you know, a bird has an option of where to make her nest. Bechira is, everyone has options. What Hashem gave a person is Bechira Chavshis. And I think the diak is on the word Chavshis of free. What does free mean? Free means literally not bound by those options. Mm. Bechira Chavshis means you have the ability to create a new reality. Mm. You know, like for example, when a kid is, comes into their mother's house, we give our kids options all the time. My kid comes home. And she says to me, Ma, what's for dinner? And I say, you can have spaghetti and meatballs, or you could have chicken. Why am I offering her those options? Why do I offer that? Because that's what I have in my pantry or my fridge. Mm -hmm. So I'm giving her options based on what I have set out for her. According to nature, you open up my fridge, there's some chicken and there's some meatballs. And those are her options. And what does a kid inevitably always do? I want pizza. <laughs> and I say, that's not an option right? That's always what happens. Now, what happens when a child becomes free, when they become an adult? What can they do if they want pizza? They can go to the store. They can buy flour. They could buy eggs. They could buy milk. They could buy cheese and they can make their own pizza. Now, what's harder? Taking what your mother offered you and you have options. I can have chicken and I can have meatballs. And it's a mm. lot easier to take what my mother already cooked for me. Yeah. It's much more effort to have to go and make your own option. But that's what Bechira Chavshis is. Bechira Chavshis is, I can make my own options. I am not bound by what nature's provided me mm. because it's tapping in to the part of us that is limitless, which is Hashem. And when we tap into that part of ourselves and work at it and create new realities, and I know it sounds esoteric, so I'm going to illustrate it for you. But when you do that, you are literally creating a new reality. Like Hashem, you have that creative energy and we have that limitless energy. We have that infinite energy that allows us to really make a new reality mm. that hasn't been presented to us. So tell us, I don't want to assume what you're getting at, even though even just the suggestion based on what you said to me, I found really moving. What did that look like for you to create a new option? 
of how to approach your life? So the new option to approach my life, I'll just give you an example, like for example, with marriage, right? So let's say I was in a place in my marriage that I was stuck, right? I was feeling like, did I even choose him? You know, maybe certain things happen that, am I appreciating him so much right now? I'm trapped between, you know, one part of me that maybe wants to give up on certain things that are hard, but I'm not willing to let go of all the wonderful things that I really want. So in my mind, those were my options. Every single day, and, Moda, and by the way, it was through Inyana Shatara that that sort of like opened my mind because I was learning about Moda'ani and how Hashem recreates us every moment. And if we're created in the image of Hashem, every moment is a new opportunity. Mm-hmm. We are recreated every moment. We can recreate every moment to be a completely new reality if we want to. It's hard work. And so I was able to say, I'm not going to have a mediocre marriage. That's not what I want. I want something totally different. And even though all the circumstances around me are pointing to a mediocre marriage, because I feel like I didn't really choose my husband, I feel like I was sort of pushed into my life, my husband's not doing X, Y, or Z the way that I want to do, I am able to right now start working on having the marriage that I want. And how does that happen? By starting to behave like the marriage partner that I want, Mm. (laughs) by putting in that effort, by creating that reality in me. And, you know, all relationships are chemical. They're like chemistry. You know, yeah. one thing's going to affect the other. Yeah, It's like, I am panem al panem. It's just the way that it is. It's like this cool automatic reaction that if you work hard enough to completely change what you're putting out, you are going to get something else completely different back. Mm. And that's something that I can't put words to, to explain how that actually happens. But I have seen it in every single relationship. And simultaneously, as I was completely changing the way that I was approaching my marriage, I was also changing the way I was approaching motherhood instead of being a martyr for motherhood, where I was like giving up reading my book to spend time with my children Mm. or giving up my morning to be a good mother to make pancakes for my children in the morning. I literally felt when I was younger, I would feel like I'm so, you know, holy and I don't know what the right word is, but I felt like like a martyr, you know, giving up my sleep to make breakfast for my children. And those were my options. I was choosing that over that. Mm. Instead, I was like, no, I'm going to employ Bechira Chavshis. I wholly choose and want to make pancakes for my children. That is what I want to do right now. That is my choice. And I'm going to put my whole heart into it. I'm not giving up anything. So in that example, like going back to the, there's spaghetti and meatballs in the fridge or there's chicken in the fridge. So either I could stay in bed and read a book or I could be a good mother and go make them pancakes. Like we generally look at things as being only two options. So the suggestion is, is not simply that I could make them pancakes and do it wholly and completely, but also I could choose a third option of being a good mother in a different way that maybe isn't being automatically presented to me. Like I'm going to the grocery store to get the ingredients for the pizza type of way where I recreate what it means to be a good mother based on who I am and based on what my circumstances are? So I'm not choosing to be a good mother or good to myself. That's really what you're saying. I'm going to be a good mother or I'm going to be good to myself. I'm going to sleep a little longer or I'm going to make pancakes for my children. I'm choosing a completely new reality. I'm doing Bechira Chavshis, which is the freest part of me, the infinite part of me. I am going to actually not be this or that. I'm going to be me. That completely one, whole, infinite, godly part of me, 
and I'm going to choose that entirely. And so I am going to choose with my whole being to make pancakes for my kids. Am I giving anything up? That's what I completely want to do. And so then it takes work and meaning in the mindset of it, of recognizing that I don't actually really want to sleep. (laughs) I actually want to make pancakes for my kids because my children, my relationship with them, that's something that is more meaningful to me. That's what is meaningful to Mm. me right now. That's what I want to do. And so I'm going to get into the right frame of mind. And then I have a totally different attitude doing it. I'm enjoying it. I'm joyful. I'm not resentful. I used to do the pancakes and then figure out how I'm going to go get back into bed Mm. to read my book. I found myself, I'm not racing through it to get to the other option. There's no other option. I'm choosing me and what I want to do completely irrelevant of all the other things that could be happening. Because this is 100% what I want to be doing, regardless of anything else that there might be to do. This is what I want to do. Just something that I'm wondering about as you're speaking is, is there an option to not make the pancakes? Because something that comes up for me is like maybe Rachel choosing to be buried on the side of the road was a choice that she made fully understanding how significant that would be for her children. And so therefore she saw the tremendous value of what she was doing and she was able to make that complete wholehearted choice and do it without feeling like a martyr, as the rabbi said. In so many examples of motherhood, I wonder if we over-exaggerate the significance of certain actions because we want to feed into the martyr narrative in our minds. And so like, I'm not allowed to take care of myself because my children need pancakes in order to have a healthy mother. And so therefore I'm going to show up fully and completely and try to do it in the most joyful way where I see it as a whole choice. But really like the premise of that choice is that is still martyrdom. It's still that like, in order for my children to have a good mother, I can't read my book. I have to, maybe I'm just harping on this specific example. And if there was like a different example, it would make it more clear to me. But I'm wondering, like, I feel like it can get murky, how we can cloak martyrdom in the language of owning our choices. So that is true. We could. I think that, again, if we're created in the image of God, right? And so at our core, why are we created? We're really created because Hashem chose that he wanted a relationship with people. He wanted people for some reason. Ultimately, he wanted to give to others. He wanted to relate to others. And at the core of the entire human experience, that's what everybody wants. We all want that. Every job is in the service of people. Every single thing that we do has to do with serving somebody else. Mm. Is there anything we do that is not in the service of others? Anything. You know, a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a cement maker, whatever. Everything is just in the service of humanity. If it's intellectual, it's to develop our minds, whatever it is. And I think that at our core, that is because we are in the image of God, that's what we want essentially as well. The deepest part of ourselves wants to give unconditionally to others. And we want to be given to unconditional. We want to feel it both ways. And I think that with children, with our spouses, with our friends, it begins conditionally. And that's because we have an Bahamas. We have a part of ourselves that is conditional. 
that's what the Nefesh Bahamas is. The Nefesh Bahamas is, what is it going to do for me? Mm. So if it serves me, great. If it doesn't serve me, it doesn't matter. But we are trying to break through that to get to the part of ourselves that's unconditional because we want to feel given to unconditionally because that is how Hashem gives to us. Hashem creates us with the ability to literally defy him. I mean, it's the craziest thing. You know, nothing else is able to defy him. The rock can't do what God doesn't want it to do. And a bird can't do what God doesn't want it to do. Only we could. And that's because God wants to be in an unconditional relationship with us. He wants us to choose him. And he therefore chooses us regardless of what we're going to do. And I think that we want that too. And often, even in motherhood, the reason that we're doing things is because we want something out of it. So we might be making pancakes for our kids because we want to feel like a good mother. Mm. We might be making pancakes for our kids because we want our children when they grow up to be healthy, whatever, whatever, Mm. because that's going to make us feel better. But the core of the relationship is I'm making pancakes for you because you want pancakes. That's it. And I want to serve you for no other reason other than you want it. And I think that when children feel that, it's the most enjoyable experience. And it comes from the freest place of ourselves because we have no expectations in return. Mm. We aren't doing it because we want to feel like a good mother. We're not doing it because we want X, Y, or Z in the future that our children should be. Mm. We're not doing it for any other reason than these children want pancakes. Mm. They want want their mother to serve it to them because that's enjoyable for them. Mm. And that's why Rachel did it as well. Rachel was on the side of the road because she knew her children would appreciate it. It's the only reason. And she was doing it because she chose those children. And she chose the children that were her weakest link children. Mm. They were the children that were the Shanda of the Jewish people. Mm. They caused the destruction of the third temple. And she wanted to comfort them. I thought that was really important. Like that differentiation you made is between martyrdom and owning our choices as if we're making the choice because we want to get something out of it because I want to feel like a good mother because I want a certain lifestyle because I want a certain image because I want a certain image of a relationship or whatever it is. When you move out of that space, then you're able to actually own your choices because it's just my choice full stop. Like I don't know what the outcome will be. Right. And that's where we give, that's part of us partnering with Hashem is giving our children free choice as well. Is like knowing that we are going to give to them the way that Hashem gives to Mm. us unconditionally. And then they are going to choose on their own what they're going to do. And we're not trying to manipulate any outcomes. We are just choosing to give freely and wholly of ourselves in whatever way is needed at that time for that child Mm. with no expectations. And that actually empowers them to be able to make the right choices and to make free choices on their own. Mm. from their most essential place. I mean, when you're showing that connection and that awareness of true freedom, your children are learning it as well, that you're not trying to control other people, that you're not trying to get certain outcomes from people, that you're really just freely, wholly giving to others because essentially that's what we want to do. That's our greatest enjoyment. That's our greatest desire, that's our greatest contentment, is to be in a relationship with someone with no strings attached, just because we want them and value them. Does it express differently in a marriage relationship where 
there are expectations or it's a marriage of two equals or two adults? Or would you apply the same logic there? So this is something that I actually wonder because one of the things that I struggle with with all of this is where does our body and Nefesh Bahamas come into play? Meaning we're not just souls on the earth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we could have stayed in heaven for there to just be unconditional and infinite mm-hmm. and da 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 da. So there is a component to our existence that God wanted, which is a selfish part of ourselves, which is a part of ourselves that's in a body that thinks about itself with the Nefesh Bahamas that thinks about itself and that does have expectations and that does have desires and that does have personal needs. And so where does that begin and where does it end? I think that all marriages begin conditionally. I mean, we know that. We go out, we look for things that attract us. We look for things that make sense to us. We look for things that we admire, that add up. You know, I always say that like shidduchim is kind of like an equation. You know, it's like how many points does the girl have? How many points does the boy have? They're going to match up. And it's always about very superficial things. It's like, what am I going to get out of you? The boy wants pretty, you know, charming, nice family. I don't know, whatever his list is, those are things that he wants that are going to serve him for, you know, whatever it is. And then if he is a boy that's tall enough and ambitious enough or whatever the things that girls are looking for, so he'll be able to get, you know, if he has three points, he'll be able to get a girl with three points. If he's five points, he'll be able to get a boy with five points. And it starts that way. And I think that over time, there's going to be a point where those things are going to start to either not be there, there's going to be an abruption. There's going to be a breakup. Something's going to happen. And, you know, the guy's not going to be as pretty. Mm. The girl's not going to be as charming. The man might not be as rich. Mm. I mean, you know, how many people marry people because they want to be taken care of and they mm. want somebody that's going to be able to do that. And that's a totally legitimate reason to get married. I mean, up until, you know, I don't know, recently, that's the whole reason why women got married, <laughs> got married to be taken care of. So those are good reasons. And I would never knock anybody's superficial reason of why they get married. Nothing is more noble than the next. But I think most people, and I don't know, you know, I don't know everyone's life. So maybe some people, everything works out perfect forever. And I hope so. And I hope everybody gets that. But in a way, not. Because at some point, God forbid there's illness. God forbid there's a financial, you know, upheaval. Things happen. And then all the reasons that you married him are gone. And that forces you to choose that person only because you want that person. Mm. I choose you because I want you. Not for what you do, not for what you give me, not for what you will do for me, not for the status you're going to give me not for the admiration I'm going to get from others as I walk down the street with a beautiful trophy wife, not for any of those reasons. I'm only choosing you because I, from my core, want you and I want to give to you. And I think we start out our relationships, particularly with friends and with spouses, the opposite way. Mm. You know, we start conditional mm. and we work towards unconditional. Sometimes we're forced into it. And sometimes it's a process of getting there. My grandmother recently passed away. And my grandmother was like, she had all the superficial qualities. She was beautiful. She was talented. She was intelligent. She was witty. I mean, there's probably no man that wouldn't be like, oh, I want her to be my wife. She had it all. 
And my grandfather was married to her, and I'm sure that he was attracted to all those things when he married her. She recently passed away at the end of her life. She was not any of the things that she used to be. Mm. I mean, she was in a chair. She could barely say a coherent sentence. You know, like her mind was not the way that it used to be. She was sleeping 80% of the time. And she would just sit in like this little chair, not little, it was actually a big plush chair (laughs) that she would sit in with a red blanket over her up to her waist. And my grandfather would come in and look at her and smile. And he just wanted to be near her, not because she was giving anything to him. It was like, that's where you saw the essence, Mm. the essence of somebody and the essence of love was that he just wanted to be around her, not because she was anything or doing anything. She literally did nothing for him. Mm. She couldn't. She used to make him the perfect meals. She was the perfect housewife. At that point, she wasn't doing anything for him. It was just the fact that she was there. And you saw that at the core of that relationship, they had built, they had gotten to the point where it was an essential relationship that my grandfather just loved her, not for anything that she was doing. And I think we all want that type of relationship. We all want to be in that relationship. We all want to give to that type of relationship and receive from that type of relationship. But it takes work. So maybe that is the body and the soul working together is that you have to kind of like peel the layers to get to the essential core of that relationship, which all relationships I think have the potential to be because at our core, we have that part of us that is free, free of any conditions because at our core, we are a piece of Hashem and Hashem is free and free of any conditions. And the greatest pleasure comes from uncovering that. And that's the greatest pleasure for Hashem too, is when we get through all the layers and reveal his essence. Mm. That's the greatest pleasure that he has. That's the greatest pleasure that we have too, is when we kind of shed through all the layers of our conditions and find that unconditional core of truth in our relationships, which is you are mine. Interestingly, by the way, our children, it's the opposite. We do the opposite with our children. Our children begin unconditionally because it's a natural love. And then as time goes on and our expectations of them grow, it actually becomes conditional to some degree where we have to fight because we have so much that we want for them and because they start becoming reflections of us and because we become intertwined with them and we want them to feed our ego and we want them to make us feel like good mothers and we want them to make us proud and we want them to give us nachas and that's all conditions. Mm. And then there's this process of peeling all those layers again and getting to the core of that relationship and saying, no, no matter what you do, no matter what you do for me, how you make me look, I choose you. And you'll see that kids actually, when they don't feel that, they beg for it. They will start doing every single thing wrong, every single thing to push every single button to make you prove to them Mm. that you choose them, that you choose them no matter what. Wow. In that question of the bridge between body and soul that you were asking previously, I'm thinking about your grandfather sitting beside your grandmother and wondering if the work is about refining the body, because in a way he is getting something from her just being in her presence because he will always be a human being, but he has refined his human being in that relationship to the extent that just being with her without her giving anything that anyone else would consider to be valuable, but just her giving her essence, just her presence there is enough for him. 
And I wonder if that's the refinement that happens like through the unpeeling of the layers. So like we still are in a way we're receiving something so much deeper and something so much more powerful, which is just being able to appreciate someone's presence, someone's essence, someone's existence in our lives without judging it based on like certain metrics that the world perceives to be valuable outside of just who they are as a person. Yeah, I love that. And I think, yes, I think that's beautiful and I think it's true. And I think it also shows us when we can get to that point that that is our greatest joy is Mm. to give to someone unconditionally. I think that you get to a place in your relationship where you don't need anything from the person because you're not thinking about that. You just want to give to them. You just want to be with them. And giving to somebody means being with them. So what you're getting from them is the opportunity to do for them, to give to them. And that's the greatest pleasure that a person has is when they feel they have enriched somebody's life, when they feel that they have contributed to someone else and they feel that they've given love to someone else. And I think in relationships, we want to get to the core of the relationship being, I choose you. Because I choose you, I will now love you. I will now honor you. I will now give to you. I will cook for you. I will bake for you. Often what we do is I will cook for you so you love me. Mm. I will bake for you so you love me. I will honor you so you X, Y, Z for me. It's almost like it's the reverse. It's all mixed up. Really, we have to model ourselves after Hashem who says, I want you. I'm creating you. Because I created you, now I'm making all the seven, the seven midos, the three of the intellectual faculties. I'm going to express everything, this entire world, because I want you. So we, in our relationships, we need to do the same thing. It's I choose you because I choose you because I want you because I want to give to you. Therefore, I'm going to show love to you. I'm going to buy things for you. I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to spend time with you. All the things that make up that relationship. And it begins with a complete and free choice, untethered by anything. And once I make that choice, I let go of receiving anything for doing that for someone else, like not expecting anything in return. And I am so much more satisfied with what I'm doing because I have no expectation in return. It's so much more enjoyable to do what you're doing when you don't need anything in return. And that's mirroring God. God needs nothing. You know, he is. Well, I wouldn't say he, he needs, I shouldn't say he needs nothing. God needs nothing other than to give to you unconditionally. He just wants to give to you. He just wants you. But as mothers, as wives, as friends, how does a person ensure that they still receive the needs that they actually need? Like, does it mean just giving to yourself what you need and not expecting anyone else to give it to you? Because in this piece of fully owning our choices, I think that could only be done with true joy if we are in that healthy space that you're describing. In a way, Rachel was able to choose to be buried on the side of the road after her lifetime, because at that point she didn't need anything. What does it look like? A mother, for example, is a very needy being when she's giving all the time. She has so many needs. Who is giving to her? Is part of this taking responsibility for our own needs when we own the choice of having children, of being in a relationship? What space do we leave for our own needs in that picture? That's a good question. I have to think about it for a second because I don't have an answer on the top of my head. 
of what that looks like to get our own needs met. I'm thinking that it's very much tied into bitachon. Like no one else can give us what we need other than Hashem. Like that's just the truth is that when Hashem creates somebody and gives us life, he will take care of us. And we just have to make a keli for it. And that means doing the things through what the guide that Tyra gives us of how to make a keli to live in this world in a healthy way. I think that no one else, they can be the agents through which Hashem chooses to give to us. And so we have to open ourselves up to making that vessel to be able to receive from others. That's part of being in a relationship is when you give, you also receive and to be open to that. Mm. But I think that the fear of like, how am I going to get my needs met? I think that's a lack of faith. Like our needs are going to get met. And again, I cannot explain how they get met (laughs) because it's almost like miraculous. But I can tell you that when you have true betachon, when you completely rely on Hashem, and what it means to completely rely on Hashem, when you rely on somebody, then you're doing what they want you to do. You know, when you completely rely on your boss for every single part of your life, you're going to work at that job. So betachon means like, if I completely, wholly, and honestly believe and trust implicitly that Hashem is going to take care of me, what am I doing other than serving him? He's the only person I'm leaning on. So Hashem wants me to take care of my children that he entrusted me with. Hashem wants me to take care of my husband that is my spouse. There's an entire Tyra with 613 mitzvahs of things that Hashem says, this is what I want. And if you do all those things and put all your basket, all your eggs in God's basket, your needs will be met. You don't need to worry about that. And, you know, we see it in our lives all the time, you know, like tzedakah is a mitzvah that many people can relate to, that many people do in their lives. That actually makes no sense. How are my needs going to be met? I know that next month I'm sending, I don't know, five kids to camp and I'm going to need whatever, let's say $20,000 to be able to do that. I don't have $20,000 sitting in my checking account right now, but I'm going to give 10% of whatever's in there to Tzedakah when I know that I need that. What about taking care of my own needs? Yet most from Jews have experienced that they will give away their money that they really cannot give away. And somehow Hashem takes care of giving them more. It's really, it's counterintuitive. Who's going to take care of my kids? How do you give Tzedakah logically? It doesn't make any sense. Yet we all do it. We experience it with having children, but it doesn't even make any sense. How do we have children? Who's going to take care of them? We don't know how we're going to be able to provide for them. We start off that way, I think, in a from life because the message that we're telling ourselves and that we're giving our children and that we're giving the world is you need to do what God wants you to do because he is the one that holds the keys to everything in your life. And so you can't do anything that's irresponsible from God's point of view. But if you think having children is irresponsible, it's not because God said Peru So that's not irresponsible. That you could do. Are you allowed to take all your money and throw it into the ocean? No, you cannot. That would be irresponsible because that is not a mitzvah. Something that I'm thinking about is the gray area in these mitzvahs, like the gray area of tzedakah when someone is really impoverished and how part of being able to own our choices is knowing what our capacity is. 
I don't want to make choices, the choice to give to anyone or to the world from this place of martyrdom. I want what you're describing of like, she chose to be buried on the side of the road that no matter what choices I make, even if someone else might perceive them to be crazy or difficult or unnecessary, that I could make that choice out of that place of joy and true choice. And being able to own those choices also means owning the repercussions of those choices. And like, I have to know when to stop. I have to know what my limits are. I have to know, you know, when to say no to the friend's favor. So I don't agree with you a hundred percent. I agree with you a little bit. Okay. And I think that we have to recognize where our choice lies. And it says, you know, the Gemara says, the only thing that we have control over is right now, this moment, am I going to choose the right thing or the wrong thing? That's it. Right now, what do I choose? Am I going to choose to make a wholly free choice that is in line with my truest self, which is a piece of a shot? That's it. That's what we have control over. If in 10 years, the repercussions of that choice might turn out to be something that we perceive to be less than desirable, that's Hashem's choice. That's not our choice. Our choice is only in the here and now. We don't control the future. We just don't. If I made incorrect choice now in this moment, and that has repercussions, then yeah, then you have to take responsibility for that. And really, I wonder about that. I don't even know if you have to take responsibility for the everlasting repercussions of a choice. Maybe you only take repercussions for your choice. I don't know. That's a question for somebody else. But you definitely don't have control over the future and you don't have control over the past. Mm. You have control over now. You only have control over now. I think sometimes we look for excuses and we don't really want to make a free choice. And we say we're making a free choice, but we're really not making a free choice. You know, I remember when I was pregnant with one of my children and people had been telling me on and on, you need to take a break, you need to take a break, you need to take a break. Why are you having so many children? It's too many. And that really messed with my head. And I wasn't able to really make a free choice. I was making a choice with a lot of voices in my ears. Mm. That's a choice that is not free. That's a choice that's being very influenced by other people. And I think a lot of times, we are doing that. And we're not being completely trusting of ourselves, trusting of Hashem. And instead, we put our trust and the power into other people's hands. And it doesn't belong there. You're being irresponsible. You know how many times someone telling me I'm being irresponsible? It's the most crushing thing to say to somebody. How could a normal person being told they're being irresponsible? That's like the worst thing you could tell a mother. Which normal person's going to then say, oh, yeah, I'm going to have another kid? It takes an incredible amount of strength to push all those voices and thoughts away and really just get completely centered with yourself and with your neshama and with Hashem and make a choice from a completely free place. That's the work. It's not easy. It's much easier to choose meatballs or chicken. And that's what the world offers you, Mm. meatballs and chicken. I will say that one thing that I always had in front of me that has carried me and really been a great benefit to my life that I'm grateful for is having grown up in a Lubavitch home, having gone to Lubavitch schools, having parents who were real, you know, shluchim and chassidim of the Rebbe is that I, in my heart, intrinsically always knew that the Rebbe would only say something that is true and that was good for me. 
I understood that true achdos Hashem means that if something is good, it's good for everyone. It means that it's good for me. It means it's good for the people around me. It means it's good for my children and good for Hashem. Good is good through and through. And truth is true through and through. So there can't be this concept of doing something that's good for me, but not good for my children, mm. or good for my children, but not good for me, or good for my husband, but not good for me. There's no such thing. That's the antithesis of Achtos Hashem. Truth is true all around. Good is good for everyone. And I knew that the Rebbe being the embodiment, I mean, we say that that's what a Rebbe is. What does that mean? You know, to me, that means that he is the person that reveals the essential truth to us at every moment. That if we look at the Rebbe, if we learn his teachings, we will be enlightened to essential truth, to the etzem of life, to the truth of life. And so I really truly believe that my entire life. And so even if I didn't fully understand something, even if I was resentful, even if I was being pushed and pulled and second guessing all my choices, I would just read a letter and I would just know if the Rebbe is saying this, that means it's good for me. I had that absolute trust. So I definitely made decisions that were just like leaning on the Rebbe, almost like a, <laughs> they say about Chagas Hasidim, you know, that they just kind of throw themselves on the Rebbe. I definitely had that type of relationship. I didn't really think all the time about what I was doing. I was much more influenced by the people around me, the world around me, modern psychology, other influences. And somehow I always knew that the Rebbe was truth. And so I just had a leg up that I was able to make certain decisions that were good just because of the environment I was raised in. And in a way, I was resentful when I was at a certain age, I was resentful of those choices that I was sort of pushed into, not appreciating that that was a gift, that I was able to make really great decisions unknowingly, that now I resent, <laughs> you know, at that current moment, not now, but at that moment, I resented. And that I came to later appreciate and realize, like, that was just a stroke of luck. I happened to be born into the right time and the right place that allowed me this great luxury of being forced into decisions that are good for me. It's like, it's not fair. My mother made me brush my teeth when I was younger, and I didn't really know why I was doing it. You know, who says that? That seven-year-old says that when they're seven. It's not fair. My mother makes me brush my teeth every night. I don't even want to brush my teeth. When they get older, by the time they're 16, they're like, thank God my mother made me brush my teeth, even though I didn't know I was doing it. Mm. How would you suggest to anyone who is struggling with this feeling of resentment or martyrdom towards either choices that they've made or choices that they want to make? How can they make choices out of this full ownership and this joy and this recognition that even if it might be challenging, like not being a martyr doesn't mean that I'm not going to embark on journeys that are challenging, but that I will be able to embrace all of the challenge with joy and without expectation for what I'm going to be getting out of it. I think that the only way to really experience Bechira Chavshis is to learn Chassidus. I mean, I don't think it's possible. Without it, you have to learn the Rebbe's letters you have to develop true betachan and Hashem. True betachan and Hashem. People say, oh, I have betachan and Hashem. I have betachan and Hashem. You don't have betachan and Hashem if you're not doing what Hashem's doing. That means that you actually think that other things also have power over you. If I am going outside and, you know, let's say I struggled with 
for example, covering my hair. That was something that I struggled with when I was younger. And it was a challenge, not completely. I covered my hair, but I didn't cover it. It wasn't like fully covered. And that was something that I really struggled with. I would want to wear my tichel, you know, showing a little bit of hair normal. I mean, who doesn't? It looks nicer. And if I would have honestly told myself, oh yeah, I have betachon. Hashem loves me. Saying Hashem loves me, that's not betachon. That's a muna. You have a muna. You believe that Hashem exists and that he's there and he loves you. Great. Betachon is I only rely on Hashem looking pretty and what other people are going to think if I truly only rely on Hashem, if he's the only influence and authority and possibility of power over me, then there's no chance Mm. that I'm walking outside with some of my hair showing so I look cute to a random stranger walking down the street. Allowing my hair to show is saying, Miss Amy Ross, my neighbor, what she thinks of me, that holds power over me. So that's not true with That means that I trust that her opinion of me matters. True betachen is only Hashem matters. Only his opinion matters. Everything in my life is determined by him. My entire experience, my livelihood, the way people think of me, my reputation, it's all in his hands. Mm. Nobody else's. So who am I going to try to please? What am I doing in that case? So I think that that only happens through really learning and because you could forget it because there's so many other influences. So you walk down the street, someone gives you a funny glance or rolls their eyes, and that will take its toll on you. That will be a pressure, especially if you haven't fortified yourself with what the essential true knowledge is, what the truth is. The truth, you don't know the truth if you don't learn it. So I think to be able to really choose freely, which is devoid of any outside societal pressures where you're choosing freely and wholly from the most essential part of yourself, that requires real betachen. And real betachen takes effort. It takes effort and it takes learning. And I think that we are so fortunate that there are endless, you start learning and you think, am I ever going to learn anything? There's just an endless sea of things to learn. And it's transformative. It's the most empowering thing to just not be tied to anybody's opinions, anybody's preconceived notions or anything decides for what you wholly, truly know from a place of truth, which comes from Tyra. You want to be making choices from your essence. You want to be making choices from you, not you that is controlled and pressured by other people from the freest part of yourself. The freest part of yourself is your neshama because that's the only free part of yourself. Everything else is created conditionally, right? Our brain has its brain function. Our eyes have its eye function. Our nose has its known function. Our heart has its heart function. Our nefesh Bahamas has its function. The only thing that has complete freedom because it's free like God is our neshama. But what does that really mean, that freedom? That freedom means to be connected to God. That's its freedom, to be free of all society, of all pressures, of all everything, and to connect to Hashem. That's the ultimate freedom. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is, how do I use that freedom and then incorporate that freedom with all my conditional parts of myself? So how do I incorporate that freedom with my brain? How do I incorporate that freedom with our hands? That's the reason we're here. If God just wanted a free soul, it would be up there. But God wants that freedom 
to extend to all parts of our life, that freedom to extend to the choice we make to have children, that freedom to extend to the way that we handle our money. Sadaka, when we give Sadaka, we are making a choice to spend our money freely, not for the pressure of a job, not for the pressure of clothing for our children, not for the pressure of what's going to happen in the future. Tzedakah is the freest spending of money. I'm saying, I am choosing to give my money away without any fear, without any anxiety, without any pressures, because it's a mitzvah, because this is what my truest part wants to do, is to connect with Hashem, and is to behave like Him, which is to give. I like how you kept saying throughout that free choice means that I perceive there to be only two options in front of me, but really there is another option that I myself can create, that I could choose one of these options in a completely different way, that the freedom is not in options. It's in how I make the choice. It's in what I do about the choice. And it's in how that choice ends up playing out in my life. Yeah. The freedom is not in the options. The freedom is choosing truth. Truth is not always the options. The options are sometimes illusions or sometimes fake. They're lies. And real freedom is choosing from a place that is completely free. That's free choice from a place that is not influenced by anything else other than the ultimate truth. That's free choice. And that ultimate truth is that there's only God and that this whole world is just an extension of God. And when you're choosing that, you're choosing truth. Truth is freeing. That's freedom. And we have a place of that essential truth inside of us that recognizes it and that has absolute pleasure from choosing from that place of truth. Nice. The question that I think we could end with, how would you describe the transition from feeling forced into the choices that you made to actively choosing them? That's a good question. And recently I was teaching my students Parshas Yisro when the Jews received the Torah and something just really caught me when it describes when the Jews said Nasa Vanishma, um, it says that Hashem held the mountain over them. And Rashi says that when Hashem held the mountain over them and sort of forced them because he's holding the mountain over them. So obviously they're going to say Nasa Vanishma, we're going to do, we're going to take Torah and mitzvahs. Rashi says it's not the way we really look at it. It's not that he held the mountain over them forcing them to take it. It's metaphoric. And it was that he was enveloping them in a love with chiba, with love, meaning when they were looking, when Hashem was asking them, do you want Torah mitzvahs? Hashem was really saying to them, look at this amazing thing that I'm giving you. And it was so obvious how amazing Torah was, what benefit it was going to give to their lives and how life is just not worth living without it. It was just such an obvious choice because they were so overwhelmed by the truth and the obviousness of it that they wholeheartedly agreed to take it. But it wasn't a true free choice because they were overwhelmed by the pressure of how it looked. It just looked so real. It looked so good. It looked so true. But it wasn't really that they were choosing it. And then if you fast forward, everyone says about Purim, you know, the Rebbe says, Kimu the Kiblu, that they, or actually the, well, who says that? I sound like those chassidim that say the Rebbe said. And it's like, no, the Rambam said it. <laughs> They're like, the Rambam also says it. So it says it somewhere in Torah, the Megillah maybe. But they re-accepted Tyra. And that was when they actually chose Tyra. They chose Hashem from a place of freedom because it wasn't so rosy then. They weren't pressured. They weren't overwhelmed. It was a time that after what happened with the story of Purim, 
it would make sense that a lot of people would be like, I'm not into this. Like, it's too scary. We could be killed. You know, the entire Jewish people could be exiled. We could be kicked out of our land. And we've seen over history that lots of people are like, no, thank you. But when they reaccepted the Torah at that time, they were choosing it not for any of the bells and the whistles that a Torah life provided. It was because they essentially truly wanted only to be attached to Hashem. And they chose Torah because they truly wanted it, not because of all the other things that it provided, the good life and the miracles and the Odysseus Mitzrayim and the plea splitting and the mun and all that stuff. And I was thinking that my life was sort of like that too. And maybe perhaps everybody's life is. I can't speak for anyone else's life because I only know my own. But in my life, I had a very similar experience. I felt like I sort of, I was lucky. I grew up with a mountain over my head in a hug of Torah and mitzvahs. I grew up in a family that Baruch Hashem, my parents were amazing. I had a warm, loving family. I had grandparents. And I just looked at my grandparents, my parents, my uncles and aunts, just everything that was around me, my teachers. And it was like such a good life. I had, I had such a good experience. You know, Torah and a Jewish life was so good. So the natural response, I didn't think, I didn't choose to get married and have children. It was like, obviously, I'm going to get married and have children. I want what my parents have. I want what my grandparents have. I want what my aunts and uncles have and my cousins have. And I just went along with it. And I did it. But it was because I was overwhelmed by the beauty of it. And then you know what happens? Just like the Perm story happened, suddenly you turn around and it doesn't look so beautiful anymore. Because you know life has its way of sometimes stripping the glitter and the gold and the bells and the whistles and all the things that make life look so beautiful. If challenges come their way, it doesn't look so good anymore. And it doesn't feel so good anymore. And suddenly I was like, I don't know if I want this. I don't even know if I wanted this many children. I don't even know if I wanted to marry this man. I don't even know if I want to be from. I don't know any of these things. And that led me on a journey to really discover Judaism and to discover Yiddishkeit and discover Hasidus and reclaim my life from a place of, no, I actually want this. I want this because it's real. I want this because it's true. I want this because in this life, which isn't going to always look perfect and beautiful, and it's not always going to be smooth sailing necessarily, the only thing that makes it beautiful in its roughness is Torah and mitzvahs. That is the only thing that gives joy and meaning and beauty to this life. And included in that, in that Torah and mitzvahs is my marriage to my husband, my children that are just the most amazing gift that Hashem gave me. And when I was able to reclaim it, the freedom and the joy and the satisfaction that I get out of those relationships is just immeasurable. Nice. I like that process of being able to reclaim the choices that you've made. Yeah. And I was able to reclaim them from a place of freedom. I realized like at this moment today, I can choose to walk away from my family. I really could. I could get up and I could, like I read, eat, pray, love. I could do what she did. I could drop my shaitel on the floor. I could pull off my pantyhose and I can sail to Greece and find a boyfriend if I want to. I can do that. You know why I don't do that? Because this is what I want. That's why. And why do you want it? And why do I want it? The reason I want it is because I think as human beings, truth resonates with us. And in my heart of hearts, even though Greece sounds nice, in my heart of hearts, I feel the truth of my life. And I want truth. And everyone does. We all want to live with truth and with authenticity and integrity. And that's what Tyra's called. 
Kyra is MS. And I think we all have the innate ability to sense it. And we search for it. And Hashem, in his great kindness, gave us Tyra, which makes it really easy for us to access truth. And we just have to want to. And sometimes he pushes us into places where we want to. We don't always want to. We're not always looking for truth. Sometimes we're looking for a lot of other things. But I think there are times in our life where Hashem forces us to search because of challenges, because of dissatisfaction, because of loneliness. And he makes us search for truth. And truth is ultimately him. And the truth is ein odovato. There is nothing except for him. And so every single thing in this world is because of him, is him, and we're part of it. And so that's what we want. We want to be part of it. And for me, being part of it is being married to my husband and being a mother to my children and being a teacher to my students. That is me being part of truth. And I want to be part of it. What advice would you give to anyone who is part of it, who has made those choices, but that still feels like they're in that state where the mountain, even if the mountain is made of love and truth, is kind of being held over them or around them, or anyone who has made those choices, but is making them out of a place of martyrdom, of feeling like they are sacrificing so much for it. How would you advise them to move into that place of empowerment, of choice, of feeling like, no, I am choosing this. And even if there are a million other options, this is the choice that I've made for myself and I could re-choose choices I've made in the past as well. So I would say two things. First of all, if you're in the stage, which is the mountain over you and you kind of were pushed into the life that you were in, I think that there's humility and being grateful for being pushed into good things. You can own that too. You can own that you were pushed into things that you were lucky enough to be pushed into and that you were afforded the great luxury and luck to fall into goodness. And that even if it's a struggle right now, to know ultimately that it's good. And the way that you know ultimately that something is good is look at the outcome of it. So if you ever want to feel good, even if you're struggling right now with the choices of feeling that you don't own it or feeling resentful of the things that you can't do, look down the line 100 years and look at the outcomes of all the choices that you make. So look at, go to a wedding when you're at a wedding and look at the grandmother that sits with all her grandchildren around her and her great-grandchildren around her and her children who have unbelievable keep it of aim who don't leave her side. And if you're at that wedding and you're lucky enough to look at another woman who made the choice to eat, pray, love, let's say, and whatever the outcomes of that, I don't have to get into the details of the outcomes of those lives, but I can tell you, it could give you examples of some people that are living with the consequences of those. And just look and see, like, obviously, there's no question what goodness is, because goodness is good. And even if just for selfish reasons, forget about getting to higher levels of wanting to do things for Hashem and for others and selfless, who cares? Just for yourself. That is your best bet. Living a Torah life is your best bet for your happiness. So right now you think, oh, I'm being forced and really I want to be a surfer in you know the Maldives or whatever you want to do. Just look at the people who are surfers and look at them 100 years out if they continued surfing and you're not going to want that anymore. So I think that whatever stage you're at, because Tyra is eternal and Tyra is such truth, it's true all the way through. So even if you're only at the level of being a selfish being, 
it's going to be true for you too. So look how it serves you. Even if you are only at the level of doing things that serve you, Tara serves you even on the most selfish level. So even if you're under the mountain, you're overwhelmed by it, you made no choices, it's good for you. And as life experience happens, and as you learn, and as you get older, you'll evolve. That's the journey of life. And you'll get to a new stages and layers of understanding and making sense of your life and making sense of the lives around you and making sense of your experiences. And they will deepen and it will be true and good for you on those levels too. And I don't think there's a problem with being at whatever level you're at. That's the level you're at. And Tyra will be true and good at that level. Nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Elokai zakinina betoatra uvimitotecha Mechamberet nishmati tamidinecha Mechamber nechamber Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, I want to invite you to leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting Hasidus into every corner of the world. I also want to invite you, if you really loved it, to share it with a friend who you think might love it too. If you would like to sponsor an episode, you can reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. To give to Human and Holy in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor. You can follow us on Instagram at humanandholy, and you can stay up to date with everything we do by signing up for our newsletter on humanandholy.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.